Good morning. Hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. I hope you're ready for part three of U.S. President number eight, Martin Van Buren. Presidency, 1837 to 1841. Van Buren retained much of Jackson's cabinet and lower-level appointees as he hoped that the retention of Jackson's appointees would stop Whig momentum in the South and restore confidence in the Democrats as a party of sectional unity. The cabinet holdovers represented the different regions of the country. Secretary of the Treasury Levi Woodbury came from New England. Attorney General Benjamin F. Butler and Secretary of the Navy Malon Dickerson hailed from Mid-Atlantic states. Secretary of State John Forsyth represented the South and Postmaster General Amos Kendall of Kentucky represented the West. For the lone open position of Secretary of War, Van Buren first approached William K. Cabo Reeves, who had sought the Vice President in 1836. After Reeves declined to join the Cabinet, Van Buren appointed Joel Roberts Poinsett, a South Carolinian, who, was opposed, who had opposed succession during the nullification crisis. Van Buren's Cabinet choices were criticized by Pennsylvanians, such as James Buchanan, who argued that their state deserved a Cabinet position as well as some Democrats who argued that Van Buren should have used his patronage powers to augment his own power. However, Van Buren saw value in <coughs> However, Van Buren saw value in avoiding contentious patronage battles, and his decision to retain Jackson's cabinet made it clear that he d intended to continue the policies of his predecessor. Additionally, Van Buren had helped select Jackson's cabinet appointees and enjoyed work strong working relations with them. Van Buren held regular formal cabinet meetings and discontinued the informal gatherings of advisors that had attracted so much attention during Jackson's presidency. He solicited advice and from de department heads tolerated open and even frank exchanges between cabinet members, perceiving himself as a mediator and, to some extent, an umpire between the conflicting opinions of his counselors. Such detachment allowed the president to reserve judgment and protect his own prerogative for making final decisions. These open decisions gave cabinet members a sense of participation and made them feel part of a functioning entity rather than isolated executive agents. Van Buren was closely involved to the Treasury Department, but the Post Office, War Department, and Navy Department all had possessed high levels of autonomy under their respective cabinet secretaries. Panic of 1837. When Van Buren entered office, the nation's economic health had taken a turn for the worse, and the prosperity of the early 1830s was over. Two months into his presidency on May 10, 1837, some important state banks in New York, running out of hard currency reserves, refused to convert paper money into gold or silver, and other financial institutions throughout the nation quickly followed suit. The financial crisis would become known as the Panic of 1837. The panic was followed by a five-year depression in which banks failed and unemployment reached record highs. Van Buren blamed the economic collapse on greedy American and foreign business and financial institutions as well as the overextension of credit by U.S. banks. Whig leaders in Congress blamed the Democrats along with Andrew Jackson's economic policies, specifically his 1836 species circular. Cries of rescind the circular went up, and former President Jackson sent word to Van Buren asking him not to rescind 
the order, believing that it had to be given enough time to work. Others, like Nicholas Biddle, believe that Jackson's dismantling the Bank of the United States was directly responsible for the circulate, responsible, irresponsible creation of paper money by the state banks, which had precipitated this panic. The panic of 1837 loomed large over, 18, over the 1838 election cycle as the carryover effects of the economic downturn led to weak gains in both the U.S. House and the Senate. The state elections in 1837 and 1838 were also disastrous for the Democrats and the partial eco economic recovery in 1838 was offset by a second commercial crisis later that year. To deal with the crisis, the Whigs proposed rechartering the National Bank. The President countered by proposing the establishment of an independent U.S. Treasury, which he contended would take the politics out of the nation's money supply. Under this plan, the government would hold all of its money balances in the form of gold or silver and would be restricted from printing paper money at will. Both measures were designed to prevent inflation. The plan would permanently separate the government from private banks by restoring government funds to government vaults rather than in private banks. Van Buren announced his proposal on September 1837, but in an alliance of conservative Democrats and Whigs prevented it from becoming law until 1840. As the debate continued, conservative Democrats like Reeves defected to the Whig Party, which itself grew more unified in its opposition to Van Buren. The Whigs would abolish the independent treasury system in 1841, but it was revived in 1846 and remained in place until the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. More important for Van Buren's immediate future, the Depression would be a major issue in his upcoming re-election campaign. Indian Removal Federal policy under Jackson had thought to remove Indian tribes to lands west of the Mississippi River through the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and the federal government negotiated 19 treaties with Indian tribes in the course of Van Buren's presidency. The 1835 Treaty of New Ekota, signed by government officials and representatives of the Cherokee tribe, has established terms under which the Cherokees ceded their territory in the southeast and agreed to move west to Oklahoma. In 1838, Van Buren directed General Winfield Scott to forcibly remove all those who had not yet complied with the treaty. The Cherokees were herded violently into internment camps where they were kept for the summer of 1838. The actual transportation west was delayed by intense heat and drought, but they were forced to be marched west in the fall. Under the treaty, the government was supposed to provide wagons, rations, and even medical doctors, but it did not. Some 20,000 people were recluded against their will during the Cherokee removal part of the Trail of Tears. Notably, Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson, who would go on to become America's most Foremost man of letters wrote Van Buren a letter protesting his treatment of the Cherokee. The administration also contended with the Seminole Indians who engaged the army in a prolonged conflict known as the Second Seminole War. Prior to leaving office, Jackson put General Thomas Jessup in command of all military troops in Florida to force Seminole immigration to the west. Forts were established throughout the Indian Territory and mobile columns of soldiers scoured the countryside and many Seminoles offered to surrender, including Chief Mike Canopy. The Seminoles slowly gathered for immigration near Tampa, but in June they fled to detention camps driven off by disease and the presence of slave catchers who were hoping to capture black Seminoles. In December 1837, Jesse began a massive offensive culminating in the Battle of Lake Okeechobee and the war ended a new phase of attrition. During this time, the government realized that it would be almost impossible to drive the remaining Seminoles from Florida, so Van Buren sent General Alexander Macomb 
to negotiate peace with them. It was the only time that an Indian tribe had forced the government to sue for peace. An agreement was reached allowing the Seminoles to remain in southwest Florida, but the peace was shattered in July 1839 and was not restored until 1842 after Van had left office. Texas Just before leaving office in March 1837, Andrew Jackson extended diplomatic recognition to the Republic of Texas, which had gained de facto independence from Mexico in the Texas Revolution. By suggesting the prospect of quick annexation, Jackson raised the danger of war with Mexico and heightened sectional tensions at home. New England abolitionists charged that there was a slaveholding conspiracy to acquire Texas, and Daniel Webster eloquently denounced annexation. Many Southern leaders, meanwhile, strongly desired the expansion of slaveholding territory in the United States. Boldly reversing Jackson's policy, Van Buren sought peace abroad and harmony at home. He proposed a diplomatic solution to a long-standing financial dispute between American citizens and the Mexican government, rejecting Jackson's threat to settle it by force. Likewise, when the Texas minister at Washington, D.C. proposed annexation to the administration in August 1837, he was told that the proposition could not be entertained. Constitutional scruples and fear of war with Mexico were the reasons given for the rejection, but concerned that it would precipitate a clash over the extension of slavery and deadly influence Van Buren and continued to be the chief obstacle to annexation. Northern and Southern Democrats followed an unspoken rule <coughs> in which Northerners held helped quash anti-slavery proposals, and Southerners refrained from agitating for the annexation of Texas. Texas withdrew the annexation offer in 1838. Britain. Britain subjects in Lower Canada, now Quebec, and Upper Canada, now Ontario, rose in rebellion in 1837-1838, protesting the lack of a responsible government, while the initial insurrection in Upper Canada ended quickly following the December 1837 Battle of Montgomery's Tavern. Many of the rebels flood across the Niagara River into New York, and Canadian leader William Lyon Mackenzie began recruiting volunteers in Buffalo. Mackenzie declared the establishment of the Republic of Canada and put into motion a plan whereby volunteers would invade Upper Canada from Navy Island on the Canadian side of the Niagara River. Several hundred volunteers traveled to Navy Island in the weeks that followed. They procured the steamboat Caroline to deliver supplies to Navy Island from Fort Schlosser, Seeking to deter an imminent invasion, British forces crossed to the American bank of the river in 8, 8, December 1837, and they burned and sank the Carolyn. In the melee, one American was killed and others were wounded. Considerable sentiment arose within the Brit United States to declare war, and the British ship was burned in revenge. Van Buren, looking to avoid a war with Great Britain, sent General Winfield Scott to the Canada-United States border with large discretionary powers for his protection and his peace. Scott impressed upon American citizens to the need for <coughs> a peaceful resolution to the crisis and made it clear that the U.S. government would not support adventures of Americans attacking the British. Also, in early January 1838, the president proclaimed U.S. neutrality with regard to the Canadian independence issue, a declaration which Congress endorsed by passing a neutrality law designed to discourage the participation of American citizens in foreign conflicts. During the Canadian rebellions, Charles Duncombe and Robert Nelson helped form a large American, largely American militia, the Hunters Lodge, Frères Chasseurs. This militia carried out several attacks in Upper Canada between December 1837 and December 1838, collectively known as the Patriot War. 
The administration followed through on its enforcement of the Neutrality Act, encouraged the prosecution of filibusters, and actively deterred U.S. citizens from subversive activities abroad. In the long term, Van Buren's opposition to the Patriot War contributed to the construction of healthy Anglo-American and Canada-United States relations in the 20th century. It also led more immediately to the uh, backlash among citizens regarding the seeming Overreach of federal authority, which hurt congressional Democrats in the 1838 midterm elections. A new crisis surfaced in late 1838 in the disputed territory on the main New Brunswick frontier, where Americans were settling on long-disputed land claimed by the United States and Great Britain. Jackson had been willing to drop American claims to the region in return for other concessions, but Maine was unwilling to stop his claims to the disputed territory. For the part of the British... For their part, the British considered possession of the area vital to the defense of Canada. Both America and New Brunswick lumberjacks cut timber in the disputed territory during the winter of 1838-1839. On December 29, New Brunswick lumbermen were spotted cutting down trees on an American estate near the Aroostook River. <laughs> After American woodcutters rushed to stand guard, a shouting match known as the, as the Battle of Caribou ensued. <coughs> Tensions quickly boiled over into a new war with both Maine and New Brunswick arresting each other's citizens. The crisis seemed to ready to turn into an armed conflict. British troops began to gather along the St. John River. Governor John Fairfield mobilized the state militia to confront the British in disputed territory and several forts were constructed. The American class clamored for war. Maine and her soil or blood screamed one editorial that the sword be drawn and the scabbard thrown away. In June, Congress authorized 50,000 troops and a $10 million budget. In the event, four military troops crossed into United States territory. Van Buren was unwilling to go to war over the disputed territory, though he assured Maine that he would respond to any attacks by the British. To settle the crisis, Van Buren met with the British minister to the United States, and Van Buren and the minister agreed to solve the border issue diplomatically. Van Buren also sent General Scott to the northern border area, both to show military resolve and, more importantly, to, the lo to lower the tensions. Scott successfully convinced all sides to submit the border issue to arbitration. The border dispute was put to rest a few years later with the signing of the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty, Amistad Case. The Amistad Case was a freedom suit that involved international issues and parties as well as United States law, resulting from the rebellion of Africans aboard the Spanish schooner, Law Amistad in 1839. Grand Vieren reviewed abolitionism as the greatest threat to the nation's unity and he resisted slight interference with slavery in the states where it existed. His, his administration supported the Spanish government's demand that the ship and its cargo, including the Africans, be turned over to them. A federal district court ruled that the Africans were legally free and should be transported home, but Van Buren's administration appealed the case to the Supreme Court. In February 1840, former President John Quincy Adams argued passionately for the Africans' right to freedom, and Attorney General Henry D. Gilpin presented the government's case. In March 1841, the Supreme Court issued its final verdict. The Amistad Africans were free people and should be allowed to turn home. The unique nature of the case heightened public interest in the saga, including the partition of former President Adams, Africans testifying in federal court, and their being represented by prominent lawyers. The Amistad case drew attention to the personal tragedies of slavery and attracted new support for the growing abolition movement in the North. It also transformed the courts into the, into the principal forum for a national debate on the legal foundations of slavery. Judicial appointments. 
Van Buren appointed two associate justices to the Supreme Court. John McKinley confirmed September 25, 1837, and Peter Vivian Daniel confirmed March 2, 1841. He also appointed eight other federal judges, all to the United States District Courts. White House Hostess For the first half, as President Van Buren, who had been a widower for many years, did not have a specific person to fill the role of White House hostess at administration social events, but tried to assume such duties himself. When his eldest son, Abraham Van Buren, married Angelica Singleton in 1838, he quickly acted to install his daughter-in-law as his hostess. She solicited the advice of her distant relative, Dolly Madison, who had moved back to Washington after her husband's death, and soon the president's parties livened up. After the 1839 New Year's Eve reception, the Boston Post raved, Angelica Van Buren is a lady of rare accomplishments, very modest, yet perfectly easy and graceful in her manners, and free and vivacious in her conversation, universally admired. As a nation during a deep economic depression, Angelica Van Buren's receiving style at receptions was influenced by her heavy reading on European court life and her naive delight in being received as the Queen of the United States when she revisited the royal courts of England and France after her marriage. Newspaper coverage of this, in addition to the claim that she intended to re-landscape the White House grounds to resemble the Royal Gardens of Europe, was used in a political attack on her father-in-law by a Pennsylvania Whig Congressman Charles Ogle. He referred obliquely to her as part of the presidential household in his famous Goldspoon oration. The attack was delivered to Congress, and the depiction of the president as living a royal lifestyle was a primary factor in his defeat for re-election. Presidential re-election of 1840. Van Buren easily won renomination for a second term at the 1840 Democratic National Convention, but he and his party faced a difficult election in 1840. Van Buren's presidency had been a difficult affair, with the U.S. economy mired in a severe downturn and other distinct divisive issues, such as slavery, Western expansion, and tensions with Great Britain. Providing opportunities for Van Buren's political opponents, including some of his fellow Democrats, to criticize his actions. Although Van Buren's renomination was never in doubt, Democratic strategists began to question the wisdom of keeping Johnson on the ticket. Even former President Jackson conceded that Johnson was a liability and consisted of former House Speaker James K. Polk of Tennessee as Van Buren's new running mate. Van Buren reluctant to drop Johnson who was popular with workers and radicals in the North and added military experience to the ticket, which might prove important against likely Whig nominee William Henry Harrison. Rather than renominating Johnson, the Democratic Convention decided to allow state Democratic Party leaders to select the vice presidential candidates for their states. Van Buren hoped that the Whigs would nominate Clay for president, which would allow Van Buren to cast the 1840 campaign as a clash between Van Buren's independent treasury system and Clay's support for a national bank. However, rather than nominating long-time party spokesmen like Clay and Daniel Webster, the 1839 Whig National Convention nominated Harrison, who had served in various government positions during his career and had earned fame for his military leadership in the Battle of Tippecanoe and the War of 1812. Whig leaders like William Seward and Thaddeus Stevens believed that Harrison's war record would effectively counter the popular appeals of the Democratic Party. For Vice President, the Whigs nominated former Senator John Tyler of Virginia. Clay was deeply disappointed by his defeat at the convention, but he nonetheless threw his support behind Harrison. Whigs presented with Harrison as the antithesis of the president whom they derided as ineffective, corrupt, and effete. 
Wigs also depicted Van Buren as a aristocrat living in high style in the White House, while they used images of Harrison in a log cabin sipping cider to convince fellows that he was a man of the people. They threw such jabs as Van Van is a used-up man and Martin Van Ruin and ridiculed him in newspapers and cartoons. Issues of policy were not absent from the campaign. The Whigs derided the alleged executive overreaches of Jackson and Van Buren, all while also calling for a national bank and higher tariffs. Democrats attempted to, cam- uh, to campaign on the independent treasury system, but on but the onset of deflation undercut these arguments. The enthusiasm for Tippecanoe and Tyler II, coupled with the country's severe economic crisis, made it impossible for Van Buren to win a second term. Harrison won by a popular vote of 1,275,602 to 1,130,033, and an electoral vote margin of 234 to 60. And astonishing 80% of eligible voters went to the polls on election day. Van Buren actually won more votes than he had in 1836, but the Whig success attracts new voters more than cancels out Democratic gains. Additionally, Whigs won May majorities for the first time in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Later Life Election of 1844 On the expression of his term, Van Buren returned to his estate of Lindenwald and Kinderhook. He continued to closely watch political developments, including the battle of between Clay and, Pre- and President Tyler, who took office after Harris's death in April 1841. Though undecided on another presidential run, Van Buren made several moves calculated to maintain his support, including a trip to the South and West during which he met with Jackson, former Speaker of the House James K. Polk and others, President Tyler, James Buchanan, Levi Woodbury, and others loomed as presidential challengers for the 1844 Democratic nomination, but as Calhoun posed the most formidable obstacle. Van Buren remained silent on major public issues like the debate over the tariff of 1842, hoping to arrange for appearance of a draft movement for his presidential candidacy, President John Tyler made annexation of Texas his chief foreign policy goal, and many Democrats, particularly in the South, were anxious to quickly complete the annexation of Texas after an explosion on the USS Princeton killed Secretary of State Abel P. Upshur. Upshur. In February 1844, Tyler brought Calhoun into his cabinet to reject foreign affairs. Like Tyler, Calhoun pursued the annexation of Texas of Texas to upend the presidential race and to extend slavery into new territories. Shortly after taking office, Secretary of State Calhoun negotiated the annexation treaty between the United States and Texas. Van Buren had hoped he would have to take public stand on annexation, but as the Texas question came to dominate U.S. politics, he decided to make his views on the issue public. Though he believed that his public acceptance of annexation would likely help him win the 1840 Democratic nomination, Van Buren thought that annexation would inevitably lead to an unjust war with Mexico. In a public letter published shortly after Henry Clay also announced his opposition to the annexation treaty, Van Buren articulated his views on the Texas question. Van Buren's opposition to immediate annexation cost him the support of many pro-slavery Democrats. In weeks before the 1840 Democratic National Convention, Van Buren supporters anticipated that he would win a majority of the delegates on the first presidential ballot, but would not be able to win the support of the required two-thirds of delegates. Van Buren's supporters attempted to prevent the adoption of the two-thirds rule, but several Northern delegates joined with Southern delegates in implementing the two-thirds rule for the 1844 convention. Van Buren won 
146 of the 266 votes on the first presidential ballot, with only 12 of his votes coming from southern states. Senator Lewis Cass won much of the remaining vote, and he gradually picked up support on subsequent ballots until the convention adjourned for the day when the convention reconvened and held another ballot. James K. Polk, who shared many of Van Buren's views but favored immediate annexation, won 44 votes on the ninth and final battle of the convention. Van Buren's supporters withdrew the former president's name from consideration, and Polk won the Democratic presidential nomination. Though angered at the way in which his opponents had denied him in the Democratic nomination, Van Buren endorsed Polk in the interest of party unity. He also convinced Silas Wright to run for governor of New York so that popular Wright could help boost Polk in the state. Wright narrowly defeated Whig nominee Millard Fillmore in the 1840 gubernatorial election, and Wright's victory in the state helped Polk narrowly defeat Henry Clay in the 1844 presidential election. After taking office, Polk used George Bancroft as an intermediate area to offer Van Buren the ambassadorship to London. Van Buren declined, partly because he was upset with Polk over the treatment the Van Buren delegates had received at the 1844 convention, and partly because he was content in his retirement. Polk had also consulted Van Buren in the formation of his cabinet, but offended Van Buren by offering to appoint a New Yorker only to the lesser post of Secretary of War rather than a Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury. Other prejudice decisions also angered Van Buren and Wright, and they became permanently alienated from the Polk administration. Uh, stay tuned to part four of U.S. President number eight, Martin Van Buren.